0: the Gospel of John, but 1 John, the first letter of John, chapter 3, <clears throat> chapter three, verses 1 and 2. I want to take my time at this this morning. I want to try and, with the help of the Spirit and the grace of God, be devotional to Christ. as always not only to exalt him, but to be devotional to his heart, to who he is, to see what our Father has done for us. And so, uh, in the Lord's will, I'll maybe do two weeks at this. I'll see how the Lord is leading. 1 John 3 and 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Keep your Bible open at that portion of Scripture because we're going to refer to it. Let's pray. Father, again we ask you to settle us in your presence. We ask you, Father, that you would speak to every one of us, that Christ would be exalted, Lord, that we would learn through thy Spirit to love him more and more every day. Thank you for loving us. When we're unlovable, you still love us. Thank you for loving us, Father. And Father, help us now to bring your word that your people will be encouraged and blessed and even challenged whatever way you speak to us this morning and glorify the name of the Lord Jesus. We ask it for his sake. Amen. In verse 1 of our reading, John, the apostle of love as he's known, you know, John was a son of Boanerges. As we read in the Gospels, Jesus took John and his brother James, and he called, they were called the son of Boanerges, the sons of thunder. And they were the boys who says, in Samaria, when the Samaritans wouldn't receive Christ, he says, let us call fire down from heaven that they may consume them. They wanted to have an Elijah-like ministry that they were just going to Old Testamentize uh, the whole of this region. Let's just slay them all, Lord. And you know, the Lord showing his love would teach John how to love. And the thing is, brothers and sisters, when you and I realize the love that the Father has for us, that is, as his children, those who are saved, when we realize the love that God has displayed for us in the person of the Lord Jesus, then when we are human— and when our temperaments change, we realize his love, and we cannot help but love others even through their, their waywardness and their difficulties. Listen, the, the question poised to us here is in order to get you and I to stop this morning, to stop and think about what God has done for us, what the Lord Jesus has accomplished for us. And the question that John starts with here in chapter 3, is this. This man who was the son of thunder, son of Boanerges, Jesus said to him, ye know not what manner of spirit you're of, because he was allowing his bitterness and his anger against people. But coming close to Christ changes a heart and changes a man and woman, changes that bitter spirit. And if a man or a woman continue to live with a bitter spirit, then they know not Christ, or have wandered far off from him. You cannot say you love God and hate your brother. Read the Scripture. That's what it says. Because how can you say you love God who you cannot see, yet hate your brother who you do see? John says that. And John has realized these things down through time. John has become close to Christ. Even the crucified, buried, risen, and ascended Christ, he's been filled with the Spirit. Again, if you are Christ, you're filled with the Spirit. If you've been baptized in the Holy Ghost, it's meant to be, the old term was, the baptism of love. In other words, now, love isn't something that allows people to treat us as they like but rather love can also be tough love, but loving out of a true heart and out of a right heart, a generous heart, to be Christ-like in mind and heart. John now is known as the apostle of love. Christ has completely changed him. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we within within our hearts before him? Has Christ changed your life? I know that that when Christ comes into a life in salvation, you know, men and women can go on for a little spurt of time and have a religious experience and change the somewhat, but really it's a heart conversion from within that changes a man and a woman. And so there's a question poised to us that we would, in order to stop and, and think about this, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we, that's you and me, that we should be called the sons of God. Now listen, behold means, now looky here, stop and watch and see, examine it. Don't just run past this. Jesus loves you and it becomes a, a something that rules off the tongue. Oh, Jesus loves me because he died for me and it rules off the tongue. No, it's stop at Calvary and pause a while. When was the last time you sat and stopped at Calvary and paused for a while? Not rushing away paused at the foot of the cross, paused at the bleeding feet, as it were, of Christ by faith under the fountain of blood and seeing him bearing away our sin. When was the last time we stopped and realized what this was was more than a human sacrifice, but rather this was the giving of a sacrificial lamb in order that you and I could be reconciled to God? This was God displaying, manifesting his love for you. And so we have to realize how much He loves us. Realize this morning how much you are loved by God. When you and I were unlovable, He still loved us. Think about this now. Let's pause. Behold, now stop and pause, look, wait and see. Let this catch your attention. In other words, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us? Upon us? When we look at us, when we look at Calvary, we see the holy, sinless, spotless, impeccable Son of God. We see Christ as the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. We see Christ who died in our place, who was pure and holy, spotless and undefiled. When we look at Him, we see God in flesh. We see the Son of God, the Son of Man. We see purity and holiness in all its display before us. But when we look at us, it's a different story. If we can catch a, a glimpse of who we were, if we can catch a glimpse of, in our own nature even now, that we must, must keep putting down and crucifying the old man and the old woman, if we can catch a glimpse, listen, we who were lost in, in our sin, dead to God, sinners, lawbreakers, transgressors, We who were dead to him, who were, listen, selfish, and self-centered, and lustful, and vile, and wicked, even devilish, you and I who wanted what we wanted, to be our own gods. That's what we hear today in society. You know, do your own thing, be master of your own destiny. You know, be your own God and be who you want to be. But rather, the gospel is completely different. And even in many church circles, we're hearing that today. Be, your, be the master of your own destiny. No, brothers and sisters, listen, Christ is the master of the Christian's destiny. It's not a case of, oh, let's speak our own worlds into existence. No, brothers and sisters, no. He has the plan and the purpose for you. I know the plans I have for you, he says. They're not your plans, they're not my plans, but his. So understanding that whenever we look at the cross whom we see in Christ, but when we look at ourselves, who we were, and who we are when we allow our flesh and our old characters to rise up and not be crucified, but rather live in the bitterness of it, live with the hurt of it, live with the disappointment and the disillusionment of it. And what happens is our flesh starts to live and starts to overcome the old man, the old woman overcomes the new man and the new woman who are born again of the Spirit and God. John is saying to us, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Or, in other words, the term here is, Behold, what does it take to adopt and to accept a person? like me, the son of Boanerges. That's what, that's what John's saying to you. That's what he's saying to me. That's what we should be asking ourselves when we come to the cross. Behold, what manner, what kind of love, what does it take to adopt and to accept someone like me? We're going to look at it. What does it take to accept someone who has committed murder? What sort of love does that take? What does it take that someone who has went and aborted a baby or maybe two or three babies committed that murder? What kind of love does it take that God still loves them and would save them, and if they're saved, they're his people. What kind of love does it take for God to reach the woman who's been unhearted or a prostitute? What kind of love is it that God would lift someone who's an alcoholic or a drug addict, uh, who who never wanted to know him or anything about him? Behold, now look at it. And then when we behold the look, where do we find ourselves? At the foot of the cross. This is the kind of love. This is what it costs. This is what it takes. This is the love it takes to adopt, notice the words, and to accept a person like that. And John is looking at it. John is just this lowly fisherman. And suddenly, what did Christ, what sort of love did Christ display for me to call me away from the fishing nets? What sort of love did Christ display for you to call you away from your fishing nets? This Calvary, what what does it really mean to you? What does it really display to you? What does it really stand out and say to you this morning? Is it just, well, there's another day and Jesus died for me? Isn't that lovely? It's so whimsical and fanciful, isn't it? But that's not what Calvary is. Calvary is a display of holiness. Holiness becoming sin, yours and mine on him. That's what Calvary is. Calvary is a, A holy God who cannot lie, who cannot sin. Becoming flesh and becoming sin for us. Why? That people like that may be adopted into his family. Like people like you and like me may be adopted into his family. And accepted in Christ. And John stops us here. It's like he puts on the brakes from 1 John chapter 2. And he comes up in verse 28 and he says, And now little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. 1 John two twenty-eight. that's what he says. He says to us, look, Christ is coming. And there are many people who, who say they are Christ, but they will be ashamed at his coming. Be ashamed. Notice what he says in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone doth righteousness is born of him. So in other words, John is saying, you know who he is. If you love him and know who he is, if he has revealed himself to you, then you will live in righteousness before him. Then he stops us and puts on the brakes. Behold. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God? Behold what manner of love means. Behold what kind of love, or behold what sort of love. I want to just open this, what manner of love. This is going to be the thrust of this morning's and uh, and this part two, uh, the message of of this. The, uh, The word, the manner of love is the word potapos. And potapos means... What manner of country? See, John stops to think about this. John isn't just glibly passing on, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And he just doesn't stop there. He just doesn't think, you know, I've stopped there from it Now let's run on. That's what many Christians do. Let's stop on a Sunday morning and let's run on during the week. Many people do that. They run on without Christ, and they run on without the things of God and Bible reading. They run on without communion with the saints. They run on without getting together. And notice, they run on because the cross is, well, he's paid it all. Let's move from the cross. I understand and growing and moving in that sense. But I love the old hymn writer Fanny Crosby when she says, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain, free to all the healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. And the cross, and the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. See, it's all at the cross. Everything that we need for our lives, for salvation, for healing, Everything is at the cross. John says, behold, what manner of love. He takes us and it means, what manner of love? Posse saying, behold, it can be said, what manner of country is this love from? It's not from our country. Listen, it also can mean, what sort of nation did this come from? Or what sort of tribe did this come from? That's the idea of this. John is stopping us dead in our tracks. He's saying, now, listen, he's coming. Let's not be ashamed before him because there's many of us uh, and we will have uh, uh, red faces when he comes because of how we have lived. At the behemoth seat of Christ, there's many Christians who will be ashamed. They will have red faces because of how they've lived, how they've conducted themselves, things they've done and said, the lies they've told or wherever they've been. And they'll say, listen, come before me and speak that is coming, John says, there be many of us who will be ashamed, will be unclothed. You see, sin and shame goes with nakedness in the Scriptures. Sin and shame and nakedness in the Scriptures. Listen, that's why you and I, in a natural sense, you and I, uh, you know, we, we clothe ourselves to cover. Why? For the shame of it. And that's why people make, make the, the industry out of things like pornography because they undo that. They undo the clothing and, and they have no shame. In other words, they're shameful, but they have no shame. But when the, the, that's why it's looked at as so uh, horrendous, because it's shameful. You see, whenever Adam and Eve had sinned and fell, in the, Adam had fell in the garden, and the Lord comes walking in the cool of the day, We're told that Adam and Eve had hid themselves and covered themselves with made aprons from the fig leaves. And the Lord comes in the cool of the day, excuse me, and says, uh, Where art thou, Adam? And, And Adam comes and says, We hid ourselves because we heard your voice in the garden. We were naked. And the Lord says to Adam, Who told you you were naked? You see, before this, in other words, they were in their shame. And before this, they didn't know shame. Their condition was whether it was garment of light or whether it was garment of thought and purity, we don't know. But whatever it was, they had no shame. It was like a wee toddler, a wee baby who'll crawl around without any clothes on, and they don't feel any shame in it. But when innocency is taken away, then shame shame comes. And and when Adam fell, shame came. Innocency was gone. And mom was sinner before God, and there was his shame. Nakedness and shame. Peter, when he's in the boat fishing, and Jesus comes resurrected and cries at Galilee, children of the mate, were told, it, that Peter girded himself with a coat because he was naked. Why? He didn't want Jesus to see his shameful state. Christ clothes us with righteousness when we're saved, but those who are professing salvation and living a life of sin will find that they are naked before him. Spiritually sense they are ashamed at his coming. In other words, John is saying, what manner of love, potapost means, what manner of country, nation, or tribe, what sort of quality is this love, the love of the Father? He's saying, Can't work this love out. And brothers and sisters, when we pause, stop and think about it, when I start to muse, even whether it's in my study or whether I'm out walking or whether, wherever it is, or even worshiping, and I think of his love for me, I still can't work it out. I still can't work it out. But when it really hits me how much he loves me, it breaks me. changes the heart. It changes the man and woman. It changes our lifestyle. It changes who we are. It doesn't excuse how we live. It changes how we live. Notice this. What manner of love, what sort of quality of love is this? And behold, what manner of foreign kind of love. You see John's mind in this? The Holy Spirit is starting to, is working through him. And He's writing behold and he's seeing Calvary again. He's seeing Christ on the cross. He's seeing the one on whom he laid his, uh, his head on his breast at the supper. And he's seeing all of this in the man who healed and the man who saved and the man who bled and the man who died. And he's looking at him and he's heard his teaching and he knows his thoughts and through all of it. Through all of it he's saying this one was different. Jesus is different than any other man. He goes, what manner of love is this? He's trying to work it out. what is it from another country or from a foreign place? In other words, the love of God is foreign to the human race. That's what he's saying. This love of Calvary is foreign to the human race. It's not found naturally in all of humanity. And so the Spirit is stopping through the pen of John like brakes in an emergency stop in a car, and he's saying, Stop! Now look at the love he has for you. Try to understand it. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. In other words, he's saying here, Behold what manner of love from what far realm. These are the meanings of this. From what far realm is this love? What unearthly love is it? And here's where my title comes from. How otherworldly is this love? High otherworldly. In other words, it's a love that's not of this world. The love of God for you and I is not of this world. But now the love of God for you and I is in this world. And so it's high otherworldly is this love. I've entitled this message, The Otherworldly Love of God. Otherworldly, what does it mean? It means something not of this world. It's, a, it's something where you cannot describe it. When we were in the United States, we drove down uh, to Memphis. We were told to go to where the great Mississippi uh, cuts through uh, Memphis, and there's a great big pyramid they've built massive. It's 300 and something foot high. And at the top of it's a restaurant, and there's, there's a chain of, of sporting shops there. Call it a shop as an understatement, and you call it Bass Pro. And I, we'd never heard of it. You don't have them here. And we went to one of the Bass Pros. There's a man who took his horse riding uh, called Dan, and he took his horse riding and then brought, brought us to the Bass Pro shop in Springfield, Missouri. And it was, wow, it was out of this world. You can't explain it. And even walking through that one, we were just everywhere from the ceiling. You walked into one part and it was all to do with fishing. It was all to do with hunting and fishing and racing and all these things. And and you're walking through and suddenly you're you're walking through and they've done the whole place as if you're underwater. You can't express it. And there's like duck's feet from the ceiling as if it's blue water and a duck's head looking down at you, you know, and fish everywhere. It's just, I can't describe it. And when we went to Memphis, he says, make sure you go to the pyramid one for it's even bigger. These places are massive. So we went and we looked around it, and they were even doing uh, NASCARs in it, and everything was just so big. There was an actual hotel in it as well where you walked in and you could actually book out these rooms that were a camping experience indoors. It's that big. I, I couldn't express it. And to us from little Northern Ireland, we had never seen anything like this. Maybe the, maybe the Americans are used to these things, but we weren't. And it was we were walking around like this. Wow. 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 This is, and we kept saying over and over and over again to each other, like, how do you even tell anybody about this? Wow. And that's all you heard from the four of us. How do you even express, explain this? And, you know, we'll take photographs, but it just doesn't tell the story right. To us, it was otherworldly, you see? I just can't. You know when you go somewhere and you see something you want to say, I want to bottle it and bring it home, but I can't because it's otherworldly? It was like that. We were just amazed by this place. We got up a lift, and you go up a lift with glass, and you're 300 feet up, and you walk out onto a platform overlooking Memphis and the Mississippi, and it's all glass floor, so you're looking down through. You're walking across a glass floor. It was just, it was just amazing. John is saying, how otherworldly is the love of the Father for us? How do we, excuse the term, bottle it? And show others. And when we actually get that experience ourselves you know, I want to go back to that place. I want to be there now to see it again, you know. I want to bring everybody and say, Come here you see it. I want to bring you all and say, let's all book a plane and go. I remember when we were in Whitewell and we were opening the home in nineteen ninety nine over in Romania, we booked a private plane. And everybody paid a plane for and it booked the whole plane, a big plane, full-size plane, and we flew over to Romania and we went and opened the home and flew home, flew back again that same day. I'd love to do that with us to express, to explain what this is, what this looks like, what this place is like. And it's like how you and I should be to say to people, I want to grasp further what the love of God for me is because John, through the pen of the Spirit, is saying, put on the brakes, people. You need to realize how much you're loved. You need to see who you were and who you are and what your own nature is like. And you need to say, Lord, thank you for loving me. Let that melt you. Let that break you. Oh, to get back to Calvary. Lord, take us there where we will have a fresh glimpse of you. You know, one old uh, commentator once says of Calvary that, a look at Christ on the cross, he says, a look saves. Look and live, he says, a look saves. But to gaze sanctifies. And when we gaze at Christ, it sanctifies our hearts. Oh, we have looked and we're saved, but how often do we gaze? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we, you and I, Rotten lost sinners. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean to, to be offensive, but that's what we are before God. In fact, if you come tonight, you'll hear what we are before God. I'm going to speak on preach the gospel. Too many fads today. Preach the gospel, tell people who they are before God. Vile, wretched creatures. But he came and he loved you. He loved you and he gave himself for you. Behold, what manner of love means from what far realm, what unearthly love, what other worldly love is this? It means of what possible sort of love is this that the Father has bestowed upon Ken Davidson? Listen, I don't know. There's things that. I I have been guilty often in my life before I was saved, and I am so glad that he loved me through it. And I'm forgiven of it. Why does he love me? I don't know. But when we're stopped here in 1 John 3, it means, behold what manner of love. The idea is stop. It's an interrogative note. I don't know if you've been, ever been under interrogation about something I have. And it's not nice. And when you're interrogated, the spotlight is on you. You're asked, you're quizzed, and you're questioned. You're starved of sleep. And the questions are put to you over and over and over again. And it's the idea, behold, let's put the spotlight on this. Let's ask and let's give questions and let's never give up until we find a deeper answer. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Can you rotten, filthy, vile, hell-bound sinner The Father put his love on me. And he put his love on you. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us means we must interrogate this question. That's what we're going to do. We're interrogating this. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. Notice what it says in verse 2, beloved. (laughs) You're beloved. Beloved, now are we the sons. You're not waiting to become a son or a daughter of God. You're not waiting for it to happen. You are one. Christian, you are one. Now are we the sons of God. Listen, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We're not, in other words, God's not finished with you yet. There's a change coming. There's a change in season, as the Spirit said earlier, but there's a change coming. We're waiting for the change, the change of the body at the appearing of Christ. We're waiting for the change when He calls the dead in Christ out of their graves. We're waiting for the change when those of us who are alive and remain at the coming of Christ will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. That we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, listen, we shall be like him. What manner of love is it that the Father has bestowed upon us? Now we're going to show you, and we're getting closer to it, but we'll never be able to explain it nor express it. We can't bottle it, but we'll tell you what it's going to be. You're going to be like him. In other words, the love that the father has for his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John says beloved. You know why we're beloved? We're beloved because we're in Christ the beloved. That's the only reason. We shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Glorified, risen Christ during the rest of this message as we uh, come to one point we're going to close it after this one point then we'll do God willing another part of it I want you to turn with me to Mark's Gospel chapter 13 please and we are going to look we're going to interrogate and investigate what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us and we're going to show you by showing you what other people Think of this term, what manner of love. It's the exact same term. By the way, when I was interrogated, I wasn't guilty. It wasn't me. It it was mistaken. Arrest by mistaken identity. I just want to put that out there. It wasn't me. I just wasn't a good boy at the time either. Listen to Mark's gospel, 13 and verse 1. And as he went out of the temple, one of the disciples saith unto him, Master, See what manner of stones and buildings are here. Now, notice, see what manner. It's the exact same term for John when he says, Behold, what manner of love. Here they're coming out of the great ornate temple in Jerusalem, and they say, Master, what manner of stones and buildings are here? In other words, this edifice was so otherworldly. It was like out of this world. That's what we would say. It's otherworldly. It was so otherworldly, it can't be described nor explained. Now, let me try for a moment just, just a little glimpse of what it would have been like. And then let's try, as it were, with a sanctified imagination, if we can, just picture in our heads the temple and what it must have been like, the size of it, and the glory of it. The temple dimensions were 500 yards by 400 yards. They started building an extension in A.D. 19, we're told. So it was 46 years in building the temple. If you remember, you go into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you had uh, Judah taken into Babylon and then the release of some of them coming out. And we have Ezra and Nehemiah building the rebuilding the temple and the walls. And then later, we have Zerubbabel's temple. So they're building, they're adding. And then we have Herod's temple. 46 years in building, they say, this was and so on. And there was an extension built in A.D. 19, started to be built, and it was finished in, in 63 A.D. So when Jesus was here, there was a great extension going on. They were extending the area of the temple. And that wasn't the temple itself, but the buildings in the area of the temple. And so I'm wondering, and I'm only saying, I can't, I'm not dogmatic in this, but I'm wondering, are they coming out looking at this on the extension, and it's blowing these, these disciples' minds, and they're saying, what manner of stones and buildings there are! Look at this, Jesus. Surely God's in here. Now notice this. It was five hundred yards by four hundred yards, and it was def- it was destroyed s- seven years after its completion in AD sixty-three. In AD seventy, Titus, the Roman captain, came at the Jewish revolt, and he destroyed it, tore it down brick by brick. Even as Jesus says in Mark 13 and 2, Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, we sort of tend to think, well, they'll get their hammer and chisel out, not one brick out, and there's another brick out, and so on. It wasn't like that. In fact, they're sort of thinking, are you joking? Have you seen the size of this thing? Have you seen the, the, the size of these uh, stones? What manner of stones they are? They're otherworldly. For example, some stones were 50 foot wide. Listen, 50 foot wide. They were 25 foot in height. And they were 15 foot in depth. And some of these stones were told weighed, listen, 100 tons in one stone. 100 tons in one stone. Is it any wonder that the disciples are saying, now, Jesus, look at this, Master. Behold what manner of stones are here. And when Jesus says this is going to be knocked down, they weren't getting out a little hammer and chisel and knocking out one brick at a time. It wasn't like a breeze block or or anything. They were saying, look at this. How did they even fit this together? It's otherworldly. Modern-day cranes would hardly lift it. How did they build it? We're also told that the temple had golden gates. And these polished bright golden gates, they reflected an amber light across the city when the sun shone bright on it. Can you imagine this on the hill? And these great stones with amber gates in the temple. And when the glory came down, or when this, pardon me, when the sun came down, the glory of the temple was seen in the sense— now, not the Shekinah glory, as it were called in the the middle, but the glory of the reflection of it, of the gates. It's shown everywhere. In fact, Josephus, the the Jewish historian, says it was enough to blind any observer that when they came and it was a bright sunlight directly hitting it, it was so bright, it was so glorious, that you you couldn't look at it. You had to cover your eyes. He goes on to tell us that the blocks— There were blocks of marble were such of a pure white that strangers from a distance thought when they seen it sitting on the temple mount that it was snow-capped mountain. But as they got closer and the glory or the light of this reflected gates was shining everywhere, they realized this is the temple. And so what happens is they start to revere the temple more than God. They become religious. Could it be that in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, listen to the words of Jesus. He says to these disciples, ye are the light of the world. First of all, he tells us that he is the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not... Walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Then he passes it to the disciples, to his believers. He says, ye are the light of the world. In other words, this this light of golden gates of a temple, it may shine around Jerusalem, but it's going to be taken down. It's going to be destroyed. God isn't here anymore. He's in you, he says. It's the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us, ye are the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, Ye are the light of the world. Listen, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. This is Jerusalem. He's thinking about the temple. It looks like white cap Mountain from a distance. It's a golden amber coming from it. How can you miss this great mass of edifice with what manner of stones or otherworldly building it is? You're getting the idea of this. You, you can't express this. You can't explain it. These disciples are saying, Master, how, how would you ever explain this to people? Look at it, Master. Jesus says, see this? This is going to be turned torn down. <laughs> you must be joking. These great blocks. These golden gates. Listen to what he says in verse 15. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Notice verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. He says, see this temple. God is no longer in it. He says, God is in me. That's what he's saying. God is in me. In fact, in Matthew 23 and verse 16, it tells us that the temple was held in such importance and with reverence that the Jews would swear by the temple. Even in the Old Testament, those who came back from captivity and started to mongrelize the true uh, Hebraic worship and Israelite worship, and, and the Lord said, you're crying, oh, temple, temple, temple. He says, and yet you're missing the way things of God. You're, you're, you're religious, you're, you're, you're twisted in it. They held it in such uh, uh, a reverence that they would swear by the temple. Acts chapter 6. Stephen is arrested, the first recorded martyr of the New Testament. And Stephen is arrested and accused of blasphemy. Acts chapter 6 and verse 13 says, they they accused him of, it says, This man ceaseth ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So So the Jews, when they arrested Stephen, they said, He's speaking blasphemy because he's speaking against this holy place, the temple with these golden gates and great stones. Stephen said, No. The temple of God is a temple not made with man's hands. He says, We're the temple. Now notice in Mark thirteen, Jesus prophesies, Says thou these great buildings, there shall not be left one stone upon another, shall not be thrown down. So in the light of this, think, what manner of stones and what manner of buildings are these here? They're otherworldly. They're in awe as there's nothing that they know which is built like this. How is it even possible? It's like foreign to them. It's unearthly. It's like it's not of this world. Just can't explain it. They can't bottle it. And Jesus said it would be destroyed. Listen, he also says in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, but I say unto you that in this place, in Jerusalem at the temple, but I say unto you in this place, he says, one greater is one greater than the temple. I say unto you in this place is one greater than this temple. What do you mean, Jesus, in this place one greater? How can anything be greater than this temple? God surely is here. Look at it. The temple in Jesus' day did not have the Ark of the Covenant, which demonstrated the presence of God, yet Jesus is a full demonstration of the presence of God. There was no Urim or Thummim, you know, the little... Uh, The white and and black stones that they they used to take out to ask the Lord to guide them. It was a yea or nay the way they should go. There was no Urim or Thummim. No sacred fire came down from heaven on the altar. Yet Jesus says, I am the way. He is our Urim and Thummim. The truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he says also that he's greater than this temple that you and I need none other. I don't mean to offend people, but all I hear is, "Oh, they're building a temple in Jerusalem. They're building it. They're going to build it. They're preparing to build it." Listen, they may try and prepare. They may try and build it, but listen, that is nowhere anybody can be saved. Yeah. Man can only be saved at the cross. I'm closing. Thank you for your attention, David Gozik. The commentator said, the temple was admired with love and wonder. We should admire Jesus even more. The temple was joyfully visited. We should come to Jesus with even more joy. The temple was honored as a holy place. We should honor Jesus even more. The temple was a place of worship. We should worship Jesus even more. I would add to that, David Guzik, I would say we should worship Jesus, not even more. We should worship Jesus Only. Only. Yeah, there's no fire from heaven, but Jesus says, I am come down from heaven. So, what manner of stones are saying? What otherworldly stones are these? What stones we we can't express this, we can't bottle it and take it home as it were. You need to see it, to believe it, to understand it. This great edifice, and Jesus says, But when you look at me, he says, I'm greater than this temple. Now catch this I am greater. I am more otherworldly than the temple. I'm come down from heaven. Now, this other worldly one come down from heaven was nailed to the cross. He was nailed to the cross, hand and foot. John, seeing him, and the Holy Spirit says, Stop! Behold! What manner of love, what other worldly love is this, that the Father has bestowed upon a wretch like you and me, that we should be called the sons of God. Does it make more sense to you? Does it bring it out to you? Do you see when we look at it and we say, wow, Jesus, this is, this, is, this is amazing. God willing, I'm going to do another part or two. We'll see how the Lord leads in this. To bring this out. This actually is part of the first couple of teachings that I've did. They're a little bit different on the radio and it will be edited, so it won't be exactly the same. And this is going to go over this every Sunday now for whatever length of time the Lord will have us there. Behold what manner of love the Father's bestowed upon you that you should be called the Son of God. Let's rejoice in it. Let's give him glory in it. Let's praise him as we go home.